You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about intellectual giftedness. Joining me is Dr. Thomas Flynn, who's a pediatric neuropsychologist and director of the Neuropsychology and Assessment Program in the Department of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at CHOP. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Flynn. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So today we're talking about intellectual giftedness, as I mentioned, but it should be noted that there is no universally accepted definition of what this is. We're focusing on giftedness in the context of cognitive ability and academics, but we recognize that there are also types of non-intellectual giftedness in things such as sports, dance, music, and other things. Intellectual giftedness is often identified by using intelligence testing, such as the Weschler Intelligence Scale for Children, or WISC, and having an IQ that is two standard deviations above the mean, which corresponds to an IQ of 130. Although it should be noted that no single test alone can identify giftedness or be a marker of intelligence, and we'll discuss more of the nuance here as we get started. So, Dr. Flynn, before any IQ testing is done, what are the characteristics that might predict that a child has a high likelihood of being gifted? Things that maybe parents or pediatricians can use to identify children who may benefit from IQ testing. So children may be identified by their parent, pediatrician, or educators when there are differences in their own developmental trajectory. So children who are beginning to exhibit early language development, speaking in complete sentences, including proper tense, noun, verb agreement before the age of two, children who develop the capacity to read, write, or perform mathematic calculations beyond what might be anticipated based on their age and in the absence of instruction. Children who have already enrolled in school but may complain of feeling bored in the classroom if the material that is being presented and the focus of instruction is something that they've already learned and they're ready to move forward, they may become frustrated or bored in the classroom. And that can sometimes lead to behavioral issues in the classroom situation as well. Right. I like that you pointed out boredom because sometimes parents think that when their child is complaining that school is boring and their child is distracted at school, that it could be something like ADHD. And as pediatricians, we're often teasing apart that. Is there something like ADHD that's causing their distraction in the classroom or are they seeking more of a challenge academically and they're not getting it? Now, When we were just talking about IQ testing in the intro, I imagine there are some pros and cons of knowing a child's IQ. And as a parent and educator, I can imagine that it could create some bias that either you overestimate maybe a child's potential or underestimate or you treat them differently knowing what their IQ is instead of approaching all children similarly. So how do you usually approach this in terms of a parent an educator learning a particular child's IQ? 
Yeah. Often when, before sharing a child's IQ with a parent in the course of clinical practice, I make it clear that an IQ number is not the be-all and end-all of that individual. It reflects one aspect of them, but it is just one piece of the complexity that makes up human beings. It can also be risky if a child has a high IQ relative to their peers. Parents may have and educators may have inappropriate expectations that the child will excel in all aspects of the classroom and extracurricular life and socially when that expectation may not be reasonable. Similarly, if a child is found to have a low IQ, just that knowledge can lead to people altering their expectations for that individual and that child not being given the opportunities or the encouragement, it may cap what people expect from that child and implicitly lead to underdevelopment for that individual. Knowing a child's IQ is not always benign and can lead to both expectations for the child excelling in all aspects, socially, academically, across subject areas, when they, that may not be reasonable, and similarly, knowing or finding that a child's IQ is lower than average may lead people to not expect as much from them, not present as many opportunities, not provide the support that they need in order to make the gains that they are capable of. Those are great points. And there's a lot to be said for how children use and apply their IQ, right? Your grit and your perseverance and your passion for things. And so, like you said, we should not be treating children differently and providing different opportunities based off of their IQ. So how stable is intelligence on standardized testing? If a child's going to be tested, you know, at a certain grade level, should that IQ testing be repeated over time as a child develops? Or is one moment in time pretty consistent in terms of what their intelligence will be throughout their life? So in large-scale studies that have been done, intellectual ability as measured by one of the commonly used intelligence tests has a moderately high stability across the period from entry into elementary school to adolescence and is relatively stable through adulthood. It is, however, the case that there are times when the validity of an individual assessment, but there's no magic to this. You're sitting down working with an individual child on a particular day and eliciting a sample of behavior through the use of standardized and norm reference tests. If a child is uncomfortable in the testing situation, if they're not feeling well, if they're especially anxious, if the evaluator does not succeed in developing appropriate rapport with the child, the validity of that assessment may not be good, and the resulting score could be misleading. Also, at very young ages, the number of test items that are within the child's kind of range of ability at that time may be relatively low, resulting in some lessened reliability of measurement. But in general, if you have a valid administration of the test, uh, you will anticipate that that score is a good reflection of that individual's ability level. I think just want to add that it's also important, however, to think about the educational and 
other developmental opportunities that have been present for a child because in our society, not everyone has equal access to those opportunities. And so there may be individuals for whom if they were to gain access to appropriate educational supports or depending upon what is available to them in their home, in community environment, when those opportunities are present, you may see growth and development and gains in test scores that they weren't able to demonstrate earlier. Those are great points. And I've noticed in reports from your department, when I see a neuropsychologist's evaluation, that you'll comment on things like parent reported they recently had strep throat and are taking antibiotics currently, or parent reported that they haven't been sleeping well for a little while and this could impact performance today. Or as you mentioned, maybe they've never been exposed to this type of testing item before and it was far into them and with more practice, these skills may develop. So we appreciate when you provide that sort of context for us in interpreting results. You hint here a little bit at some of the disparities. I'm wondering, are there racial, ethnic, and gender possible disparities in identifying giftedness? Yeah, unfortunately, there are. There are state-level mandates that create an obligation for school districts to identify individuals who are gifted or who have a high level of intelligence. Really, what we're talking about here is the development of human potential. And if you have individuals with a high level, and the focus of this podcast is on cognitive or intellectual giftedness, if you have individuals who have a high potential, you want to identify early nurture and help develop that potential in the individual for their benefit and for the benefit of our society as a whole. However, there are differences that fall upon across socioeconomic and among minoritized populations where the expectation or the recognition that there are gifted and talented and cognitively gifted children in that population, there may be an under-recognition of those children. And the resources that are available in school districts is not equal across schools in the country. And so, although there is a, a societal interest in identifying all individuals who have intellectual giftedness, in practice, there may be differences that unfortunately do fall upon socioeconomic and racial kinds of lines. So when there have been population-wide screenings done in the context of research or other initiatives, the identification of gifted individuals who otherwise may have been overlooked has been shown to be much higher there. We're missing people using standard procedures in many cases. And I think pediatricians have a, a potential contribution here and need to be thoughtful about the developmental trajectory of the children in their care and are another layer of a system that may help identify individuals who would benefit from evaluation to help identify potential and make sure that we're nurturing that potential as fully as possible. Yeah, great point about pediatricians using this as a way to advocate for patients when we are identifying children in our office who are showing signs of giftedness and helping their parents advocate for them in their educational setting. 
Now, as you mentioned, and I mentioned earlier, we are talking about intellectual or cognitive giftedness, but there are other types. But do these things go hand in hand? So my question for you is, is giftedness universal? Are gifted children who are gifted academically sometimes also equally exceptional in sports, music, and other domains? Or do these things really stand alone? Well, that's a complicated question, and people are individual. But I think it can be a risk to expect that a child who is cognitively or intellectually gifted is going to excel in all aspects of their life. And that expectation, either others' expectation that the child will do well at everything they touch and do, can create pressures on that individual. The individual themselves may have a difficult time experiencing the fact that in some spheres of their life and in some situations, they excel and at others, they're like everyone else or may in fact struggle in some aspects. So I don't think it's reasonable to anticipate that just because a child is intellectually gifted, they're going to be great at everything they you know, bring their hands to. That expectation could create pressures for the individual that are not fair or appropriate. And I have seen this with patients who may may be gifted in something like reading and writing and their ELA classes do extremely well and are very advanced, but then struggle a little bit more in math or, or just have an average performance, but it seems like a struggle compared to how easily reading and writing come to them. And it can be hard because we do classify people in categories in our head sometimes, and parents are not immune to doing that. And sometimes think that their child has a problem in math when really it's just an average performance and children can excel in one subject matter and be normal intelligence in another. And so I like that you emphasize the individuality here. Yeah. And I I think it's also important to recognize that a child who is maybe advanced in their ability to use language and reason and is very advanced verbally People may just implicitly kind of read off of that individual child that they are going to have emotional maturity, behavioral and emotional regulation, social skills that kind of equal the area in their verbal skills and development. And that's that may not be the case. They're still a child. And although their verbal skills and their intellectual ability may be advanced, their social skills, their understanding and development of relationships their ability to know and to understand their own emotions and regulate their behavior are not necessarily going to be advanced. And people may think about a gifted child as a little adult in some ways because of the strengths that they demonstrate. But it's also important to recognize that they remain a child and their development across those other very important spheres of of human life is not necessarily advanced. And you need to work with that unique profile, that individual profile of real recognized strengths and also very appropriate developmental needs. So important. And I love that emphasis on letting kids be kids too, right? We don't want to rush things and make them grow up too quickly. Now, another term that I think might be new to some people is twice exceptional. And this is used to describe a person that is both gifted and has a neurodevelopmental condition, such as a learning difference. 
It seems like intellectual giftedness may be harder to recognize in this particular situation. So what are some indicators that a child might be twice exceptional and how are their educational needs different? Yeah, this can be especially challenging in the identification of what what you're referring to as twice exceptional is often thought about in terms of a learning disability, as you've mentioned, or ADHD as another example of a neurodevelopmental condition that can also be true about a child who is intellectually gifted. So it is possible to be both intellectually gifted and have a learning disability or be intellectually gifted and have ADHD. But you're correct in saying that it may be more difficult and there are some unique challenges to the identification of those students. Because an intellectually gifted child who has a learning disability might be performing at or near the level of their peers overall, and so may not be evident relative to the group of peers in the classroom that they have a learning disability. But in fact, they may in a particular skill area. So it is important to understand If a child is showing challenges in their progress in terms of verbal learning, reading, spelling, writing, or in their ability to perform in math, despite their other evidence of intellectual giftedness, then an evaluation should be undertaken to really understand the component skills of reading in that individual and not just their grade level performances look at math skills and the component skills that contribute to math achievement and in relation to what we also know about that child's intellectual ability and their development overall. So it can be more challenging to identify those individuals who are twice exceptional because it is important to, in order to both nurture their intellectual and cognitive development and address the needs that they have associated with the learning disability or with ADHD and make sure that they receive both support and opportunities to develop their cognitive abilities and also what kind of supported education and remedial instruction and skill building is necessary to advance their academic and development in reading and math or behavioral regulation and attention in the classroom situation in the case of ADHD. Right. Now, intellectual giftedness seems like it would be an asset in a school setting, but these children can have some social challenges or be the victims of bullying. So can you talk about the impact of giftedness on mental health? So yes, you'd think about giftedness as something that's universally good and positive, but it can impact the lived life of a child who is identified as intellectually gifted. Some children may take steps to conceal the extent of their ability among their peers. I remember a young teenage child who would decide what grade he wanted to get on a test. And usually he aimed for an A minus and would deliberately answer a certain number of questions wrong in order to adjust his grade to one that he felt would be, you know, strong enough, but not attract kind of attention. And I think children who are gifted, who do stand out from the pack in very clear and obvious ways can become a target for bullying. They may also develop expectations they may place on themselves or others might place on them to do well at everything, to always succeed. And they can become very 
really because many things come easily to them that when they face a challenge, they may not have the skills to cope with that. Perfectionism is a is a common trait among individuals who are cognitively or academically gifted and can have an impact on their mental health and well-being. Again, I think it is important to think about individual children and to both foster their potential and provide opportunities for them to achieve while also providing support to them around the development of the whole person. And that includes attention to their social life, to their emotional life, and to the development of health in both those spheres in terms of their relationship with others and their understanding and acceptance of themselves. So as you mentioned, many children who are intellectually gifted are also perfectionists. But we know that in building resilience, it's important to let children learn how to fail and recover. So can you give us some examples of how we can guide parents to build resilience in their gifted children? That's an insightful comment. Sometimes people learn more through the things that they struggle with and have to overcome than the things that come easily. And so I think it is important that parents provide opportunities for their child to take on challenges that are not sure or certain for them, things that will require them to stretch and to attempt something that they haven't done before. And that can be in terms of classroom work, that could also be in terms of extracurricular activity or in social situations or in sports. Those are all examples of aspects of life that a parent can support their child in developing. A parent helping their child understand that not everything is going to come easy and that when they struggle or at times if they fail in something they attempted to do, there are lessons to be learned there and opportunities to help a person grow and develop. It's, you know, nobody, well, almost no one, with the first time you took your first steps, all of us fell and we all learned from that experience and have gone on from that to master walking at an early point in development. And like that, things that we can reach for but not necessarily attain or reach at the outset, those are places where growth happens. That's right. And I always tell parents to focus on praising the effort that a child puts in more so than the outcome of what happens, especially for those kids who are perfectionists and might be upset that they didn't end up with a perfect, as you mentioned before, perfect grade or perfect score on something, that they are just proud of how hard they worked and the fact that they took risks or tried something new, praising those moments versus how they actually performed in the event or in the academic world can be an important motivator. And as you mentioned, letting them stretch. Don't just feed them for, again, those kids who excel in reading and writing tons of books all the time, but push them to try other activities that might not be their strong suit and let them try to stretch their legs a little bit in something that gives them a challenge. Mm -hmm. And accept that some things, you know, they're going to love and do well at and some things they're going to try and that's just not for them. Right. Now, we talked a little bit about the role of pediatricians throughout this podcast, but another way that pediatricians can help parents advocate for gifted children is in getting an evaluation for an IEP or 504. So how is giftedness treated as a, quote, special need within the school system? 
So an IEP and a 504 plan really relate to federal legislation that addresses the needs of children with identified disabilities in the school system. Those federal laws and state laws and regulations that kind of are in conformity and enact those federal laws don't really address gifted and talented education. Gifted and talented education is addressed at the state level, and there may be some variations state to state in terms of the obligations that schools carry and the precise definitions and identification procedures in those individual jurisdictions. But a pediatrician can always help and support a parent if they suspect that a child is intellectually gifted in reaching out to their school system and requesting an evaluation to determine if that child meets that school district's criteria or that state's criteria for intellectually or academically gifted student. And then that evaluation in most jurisdictions does not rely on a single test score alone and instead should include multiple sources of information from parents, from teachers, at times from the child themselves, and using multiple approaches to measurement that can include an IQ test and the scores resulting from it, but shouldn't be limited to an IQ test alone. Right. And I love that you emphasize getting multiple different pieces of information. It's also important to talk with your teacher about ways that they differentiate instruction. And so for kids who may be gifted or maybe they're not gifted by standardized testing and and other reports, but really excel and, and have a passion for a particular subject matter, there may be ways that the teacher can provide challenges for them in that area that keep them engaged in their school day. Yeah, that's an excellent point. You, A teacher has the challenging job of trying to understand where each child in the classroom is at, meet them at that level, and provide instructional opportunities that advance their skills and development, take advantage of what they already know and understand, keep them engaged and build and grow their skills. That is an especial challenge when a teacher has a gifted student in the classroom because what is their instructional level and the pace at which they're able to take on new information and build skills is different than the remainder of the children in the classroom. And you want to make sure that that student's needs are met, that their potential is developed while also addressing the needs of all the students in the room. Well, thank you so much for sharing information with us today about intellectual giftedness. As pediatricians, we spend a lot of time thinking about the other end of the spectrum of our patients who have developmental delays and learning differences and some of the other neuropsychological conditions that we talked about. But it's nice to think about as well providing some advocacy and support for our patients with intellectual giftedness, particularly as we start a new school year and these concerns and issues may be brought to us in clinic about how to support these patients. So thanks for teaching us today about giftedness. Well, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.